Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. On today's episode, we'll talk first with Bryn Stoll, our Washington, D.C. correspondent. Bryn recently interviewed Congressman Steve Scalise, the majority whip, at least for the next few months, about Scalise's plans now that the Republicans have lost control of the House of Representatives. Next, we'll talk with Ricky Thompson, a business reporter for The Advocate, who will update us on a series of lawsuits filed by people who helped clean up the 2010 BP oil spill but were left out of a global settlement of most claims thanks to some language in the fine print. And last, food writer Ian McNulty will come by to talk about the revamped food court near the foot of St. Charles Avenue and how it's a little bit different than the food court and the mall with the Panda King and the Cinnabon. Bryn is uh, is with us on the phone from Washington. Bryn, thanks for joining us today. Sure, thanks. Uh, So you had an opportunity to talk with Steve Scalise this morning, and obviously it wasn't a great result for the Republicans in last week's midterm elections, and Scalise may have been affected more than most members. He was a guy who was in line to be House Majority Leader, the number two position in the chamber with the retirement of uh, Speaker Paul Ryan, and he might even have become Speaker had the GOP been able to hold on, but they didn't, obviously. So where does that leave Steve Scalise? Yeah, Scalise had a uh, a lot on the line uh, last in last Tuesday's election. He, um, I mean, he had personally invested in a, a huge amount of time and effort uh, in campaigning for for other Republicans uh, and trying to work to hold their majority. Um, he he raised a, a I mean, for for someone in his position a pretty incredible amount of money. I think I don't think any whip had ever raised anywhere close to the amount of money that he brought in over the election cycle to try to prop up Republicans mm-hmm. and. Um, he was widely seen as, I mean, certainly with, with Paul Ryan's retirement at the end of this year, if the Republicans had held the majority, he was certainly going to at least be a uh, majority leader. And a lot of people actually thought he was likely going to be speaker because uh, Kevin McCarthy, um, the, the majority, the, the presumptive speaker, leader, sort of, right. From, from uh, California has, has a lot of skeptics in the Republican Party, especially in the House, especially in the far right wing, right? Um, who, who had scuttled. He was supposed to be Speaker in 2015, uh, and he couldn't pull together the votes after um, John Boehner had to step down, and right. that's why Paul Ryan, who at this time was a, a committee chairman, had to step in to become Speaker. And Scalise has always been much more popular um, in on the right flank of the party. He was um, the, the House Study Committee chairman before he went into leadership, where which was before the creation of the Freedom Caucus, sort of the, the center of, of pretty hardline conservative thought in the Republican House Caucus. Right. Um, and so and so, if, if McCarthy were, were to stumble for a speaker, Scalise would have been right there uh, in the logical next, uh, next guy. Uh, and now he's moving into the minority, which in the House of Representatives is, is a massive transition. Um, the House of Representatives is a pure majority ruled body. Right. Um, and so if you are a member of the minority, unlike in the Senate, where uh, any single senator of either party has a considerable amount of heart power, just, just at least to slow things up and force people to negotiate. Uh, and that's not how it works in the House. Yeah. Um, whoever whoever the speaker is, they set the agenda and they rocket through votes and they do not have to negotiate uh, unless they want to. And in fact, the Republican speakers have, have always adhered over the last uh, several years have adhered to what they call the Hastert rule, which means 
they wouldn't even bring a bill to the floor unless they have Republican enough, all pretty close to enough Republican votes to pass it. So right. he is moving from a, a position which would have put him pretty much in charge of the entire legislative agenda um, to uh, really nego- as a junior negotiating partner now <laughs> uh, in the yeah. House, and, and really it's more about messaging and strategy than it is about, about passing anything. political power <laughs> and uh, and legislation. Gotcha. Well, um, so that's yeah, obviously a big change for him. But given, despite that, he uh, there. Well, let me switch to another topic. We elect a new governor in Louisiana next fall, and there's been some talk about <clears throat> Scalise running. Although he's mostly discouraged that kind of talk. Did you get to talk to him about his plans? Yeah, I asked him about this, and this has been a persistent rumor that that, that people have been hearing for for a number of months now that Scalise might uh, want to come back to Louisiana, become governor. And, and, and he is, yeah, he said uh, no way uh, before the election. Um, and he, the theory, but the theory being that, um, you know, now that he, that election's over and they're going into the minority, a much less powerful position, um, and, and the speakership is out of reach, then maybe right. he would want to reconsider. So I asked him about this and he said no way. Okay. Uh, he, he, what he told me today was, um, that he is going to become the uh, Republican minority whip, and he is going to serve out that entire term. Okay. Um, which will take him through 2020 and past the 2019 governor's race. Right, which is um, late next year. Um, so, did what does he see as um, what does he see as his role in in that? I mean, is it is you know what does he see? Does he reflect on why the party lost the house and what they have to do to get it back, or what does he see himself doing in the next two years as minority whip? Yeah, he. Um, I thought this was actually pretty interesting. He told me. I mean, one of the things that that they that he wants to focus on is trying to blunt uh, the Democrats' fundraising advantage um, mm-hmm. in a, in a really big way in twenty eighteen. Uh, Democrats massively outraised uh, their Republican opponents, especially in the House. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've also come up with a, with, a, with an online platform uh, called Act Blue, which has been very, very effective for Democrats in channeling uh, relatively small dollar donations from across the country to um, particularly competitive House races. And the Republicans have struggled to, to try to match that and are trying to figure out now, you know, is this do the Democrats have a, a longer-term dollar advantage? And Scalise is, Scalise is very concerned about that. Um, and he also said that, what, and I thought this is quite interesting, he wants, that he wants to focus on uh, returning the Republican Party, taking up the mantle, was the term used, of being the party of fiscal discipline. He says hmm. that they've lost that over the last several years. Yeah. Um, and they've, they've in, in agreeing to too many big spending deals, that the deficit has been ballooning, even yeah. though uh, the Republican Party for the last two years has controlled both the White House the and the Senate and the House of Representatives. Right. Um, and with the tax cut power, bill, you have uh, more deficits, you know, expanding deficits coming, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's certainly the every projection says that the, the Republican tax cuts, um, while they, they, they may, and this is a point of debate, but they may have, be having a big effect on the, the economy, yeah. are also having a big effect on the federal deficit. Yeah. Um, that, that spending is going up while revenue is going down. Um, and that he says that they, he wants them to, to get more serious about that. Uh, and that's part of the message he thinks that, that'll bring them back into the majority. 
Um, let me ask you, did, uh, did he say who he might support in the governor's race next year? I know we don't know who's in the field yet. We've got uh, Eddie Rispone is the only declared Republican, the businessman, and we've got John Kennedy, the senator, flirting with a run, and that's about all we know so far. Well, and Congressman Ralph Abraham is also Oh, yes, there. of course. Also flirting at this point. Yeah. About it. Yeah. Um, no, he said, in fact, uh, this is, this is uh, he, he called it too early to say, mm-hmm. um, which I think would, would surprise maybe some other people. I know, I know Jeff Landry, um, who said he might run himself, has been, uh, the, the Republican Attorney General, has been irritated with how slowly Republicans have, uh, uh, have, have, have been to, to settle on who the challenger is going to be. He said he's just he said he's going to be watching it closely. Um, he's remarked before to me that he he has tried to uh, stay out of the the nitty gritty of uh, at least the public part of state level politics since he went to Washington. Yeah. Um, and so he said he, he all he would say is that he'll be watching it closely, and I, I suppose probably will will do what he can. Um, he certainly would like to see a member of his party retake the governor's mansion, but um, sounds like it's not going to be him, and he is not uh, trying to, uh, to to put his thumb on the scales at this minute. Gotcha. And last question, he, um, he has a book coming out, which we excerpted some of in Sunday's paper, uh, and the book recounts his experience, uh, his near-death experience of being shot by a mentally disturbed gunman um, who was apparently angry at Republicans. Did, uh, did does the book have a political message, or is it more of just a personal story? No, it's it not not really. Um, so yeah, at least I, I talked to him by phone today. He's up in New York uh, uh, today, uh, Monday, doing a, a whole media blitz. He's going to be on, on Hannity tonight, and is filming um, interviews with ABC and NBC and some of the other uh, other folks. Um, out of the book launch, he's going from the from the campaign trail to the book the book tour. Yeah. Um, no, it, 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 it's it, it's only political in the sense of you know there's quite a bit in there about um, about what politics means to him and, mm-hmm. and his his leadership philosophy and um, the ways that he saw the the annual congressional baseball game as, a, as an important way to develop friendship both on the Republican side and with his Democratic colleagues across the aisle. Right. Um, but there's no real, real, and, and he certainly talks about his own, his own beliefs and values to a degree, but it's not, it's not overtly political. It's really, um, the vast majority of the book, and, it, and it's pretty gripping in part, is um, a, a really detailed blow-by-blow account of what happened mm-hmm. uh, on the day of the shooting. Yeah. Um, and he went back and he interviewed all sorts of people who were involved in it right. um, to help piece together the book. And then... Um, what what it was like for for the three months that he spent in a Washington hospital um, with several bouts of infection that that nearly proved fatal mm-hmm. um, and, and a lot of and, and a lot of recovery um, right. and physical therapy needed to get ready to get back to work. Well, uh, that's all the time we have now. But thanks so much for joining me, Bryn. Oh, it was a pleasure. Anytime. All right. Take care. All right. Next, we're joined by Ricky Thompson, a business writer at The Advocate. Thanks for joining us, Ricky. Thanks for having me, Gordon. Of course. Uh, Ricky, you've been working on a story with uh, David Hammer over at our partner station, WWL-TV, about the situation that thousands of people who helped clean up the 2010 BP oil spill now find themselves in. A lot of these people say they got sick and continue to have chronic health conditions. 
but they've been ineligible for any assistance from this uh, 2012 settlement, kind of a global settlement that was supposed to take care of everyone who is hurt by the spill. So explain why that is. So the people that are impacted by this part of the settlement could be as many as 20,000 folks who are largely response and cleanup workers who worked in the aftermath of the oil spill. And these are people who developed chronic conditions almost immediately after the spill, but later. And what kind of conditions are we talking about? These could be anything from respiratory issues to uh, eye issues, skin irritation, to coughing, things along these lines that have stuck with them. Mm-hmm. And so these are folks that were initially under the part of the settlement that was negotiated eligible for a one-time lump sum cash payment of about $60,000. And at the time when it, the settlement was brokered in 2012, that this part of it was designated just for these kind of people. And what ultimately happened was the settlement, once it was in place, it had an administrator who interpreted the language on it differently than the lawyers who had initially brokered it. Okay, so... In other words, BP and the plaintiff's lawyers thought they they had sort of come to an agreement that people who had these conditions would be taken care of, or so it seemed, and then this administrator read this language a little bit differently. He read the language a little bit differently as though these kind of conditions were also to be treated similar to workers who later developed cancer. And and what was the key phrase again in this? this? It's an issue, it's maybe a handful of words in a lengthy settlement dealing with later manifested conditions later manifested conditions versus later diagnosed conditions okay and the idea was that these conditions were essentially lumped in with something like cancer which could take years to develop if you could show that the cause of it was linked to the oil or the chemical dispersants that were used in the spill and the cleanup effort and so ultimately what it all hinged on was a deadline of april of 2012 and many of these people that's when you needed to have the, the diagnosis by the diagnosis in place and the problem here and we saw this across the tens of thousands of people who worked in the spill and were dealing with issues after is that you know this is a group of people who's in some cases they live far from clinics they don't see doctors regularly they may not have health insurance and, right and so even if they had these conditions right after they may not have Gotten the diagnosis. It. And it, you had to get a diagnosis, which also requires taking very specific tests just to prove it and show what you had. And so these are people who fell into that category where they didn't get diagnosed until after. And just to be clear, there was no specific benefit to them at the time to get that diagnosis. I mean, in other words, they may have known why well, I have nausea and skin irritation, but it didn't wasn't going to do them any good to have a doctor tell them that. Right, and they didn't know necessarily what the specific tests were that they needed to take for that. In diagnosis. order to become eligible for this aid. Okay. So uh, so you've got two cases that are kind of leading the pack here, right? And you've Tell us a little bit about one of those cases. So we spoke to two uh, folks who worked in the response effort, both from Metairie. One is Walter Castro, who's in his early 50s, and he worked as an industrial hygienist after the spill. And that he worked for about five or six months. And essentially what he did was he would go around to places on the beach or in the water, and he would take uh, readings of the air quality there to determine whether or not it was safe for other people to go. And so as part of that, he says he constantly was inhaling chemicals and toxins. The water would splash up on his skin or his face. He would develop itching and irritation. And coughing issues, and these things have gone on. They were quick to develop. They've gone on all this time. So, uh, 
his case and this other case are expected to be the first couple of cases heard in this. But there's, but you said there's how many cases filed now? So the way it's worked is that these cases where they had the diagnosis later, they applied for the $60,000 payment. They were denied by BP. BP had the option to mediate these cases, and they chose not to. And so now they're only outcome is to, to sue BP. In if court. they would still want to be paid, their only choice is to sue. Right. And so how many people are now suing? So we spoke with Howard Nations, who's a Houston-based attorney representing both him as well as another man uh, uh, that we spoke with. And he says he represents about 10,000 claimants. He has a staff of more than 50 people working to file about 20 cases a day. And each case has to be filed individually in federal court in New Orleans. And it's costing millions of dollars even just to bring these cases up. Okay. And so is this a case, I know this isn't envisioned at this point as a class action, but if these cases are, are either settled out of court or they're litigated and there's a trial and there's an outcome, do you expect that this could turn into sort of a mass settlement once both sides kind of see which way the wind seems to be blowing? It, it's hard to know for sure, but you'd have to think that would make the most sense that if BP goes and it doesn't like the way these two cases turn out, that they would look to try to see if they could resolve some of these cases more broadly. And these aren't cheap cases to bring either. I mean, uh, Howard Nations estimated that it could cost maybe two, uh, $200,000 just to try these cases. Wow. Um. Okay, and these cases, these two initial cases, are expected to be heard when? They So the, the dates could move off. These are the first two to have dates at this point, but we're expecting something in the spring. All right, well, uh, we'll keep an eye on this story. Um, thanks for joining us today, Ricky. Thanks, Gordon. All right. All right, well, last we're going to be joined with uh, by Ian McNulty, the food writer here at The Advocate. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Oh, wouldn't miss it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Um, so, Ian, you recently wrote an interesting story about uh, the food court at 201 St. Charles, Place St. Charles building in downtown New Orleans. How did you come across? What what prompted you to go down there? Well, you know, Gordon, the fascinating thing about being a food writer is that you, you get fresh material every time you get hungry. <laughs> it turns out that happens a few times a day. Well, in this particular case, I'm downtown. I'm hungry. I'm actually kind of pressed for time between some appointments. I needed something quick and fast. And I remembered, yeah, there's that food court up at the St. Charles, Place St. Charles building there. I hadn't been in a long time. Um, I wasn't really being too particular, but as soon as I walked in, I noticed there were a lot of changes. I noticed a few new booths for vendors, places I hadn't seen before. I grabbed my lunch, had a, a dish from one of the new vendors there, Baba Ganoush Cafe, this mm-hmm. Middle Eastern thing. I thought, wow, this is a lot better than I thought. I looked around, saw these other new ones. I started putting, working it into my rotation, going back. And it turns out what I had stumbled upon was a very purposeful reinvigoration of this old food court that has been part of the downtown New Orleans, let's call it foodscape, right? right. <laughs> For a long time. But uh, had been pretty invisible. And frankly, I think a lot of people would have said uh, probably pretty outdated in this modern food I mean, era. food courts have kind of gone the way of suburban shopping malls a little bit, right? Right. And, you say food court, people think the mall. They think... Uh, yeah, it, which are themselves sort of dying out. The new the new model that has all the hip energy these days is the food hall. You know, one word difference, but right. uh, in the popular imagination and in the marketing of these things, very different. The food hall is this artisan collective of vendors and, you know, very heavy, heavy uh, social media marketing, very much aimed at all the millennial food trends. 
they're hot all over the country. Developers are dying to get get uh, their hands on the next one. And New Orleans has seen a few crop up in just the past few years. Like the, the St. Rock Food Market or Saint, what's it called? St. Rock Food Hall. Yeah, yeah the St. Rock Market. The one around the corner here. Auction House Market. Another one, the Pythian Market, uh-huh. uh, which are, are fun. You go to these yeah. places. There's a whole collection of, of vendors. The, the, their strength is... The uh, vast array of options right there. You can go with a group. Someone can find something. But guess what that sounds like? Expensive. A food court. <laughs> Expensive. Well, yeah, they tend to be a little pricier. I was going to say the weakness of these places in my experience is, you know, you're like, hey, I've got a sandwich and uh, that would cost me 20 bucks. Yeah, right. Yes, that is another It's a good sandwich, but, but yeah. yeah. All that marketing doesn't come from nothing, right. right? You know, all that sleek artisanal design doesn't come from nothing. But that's why it was interesting to discover this food court, uh, which you know, has new life, has new pulse. So in the last, let's say, two and a half months at this point, they've had four new vendors come in. Uh, they've got a, a new one for Nicaraguan food wow. called Nola Nica. They've got uh, this new Middle Eastern place I mentioned, Baba mm-hmm. Ganoush Cafe. Uh, there's a new pizza place with sort of a little Mexican twist, uh, twist to it. One of the longtime vendors there, a place called Steve's Diner, just mm-hmm. changed hands and is going over under uh, some changes. And then if you dial it back maybe a year, there's a new Korean place in there, too. I mean, it sounds kind of almost as cool as a food hall. But what's, <laughs> what, what, is it just the food's a little less uh, snazzy? Or is it, what's, what's, and what's the price point? And you said it was it's, cheaper, but is it? Yes, it's very affordable. I mean, this is what I like about this place is that, you know, downtown New Orleans does not have really viable, I think, street food. Mm-hmm. That idea of, you know, you're walking along, you're hungry, you, you don't want to make an errand out of it. I give you money, you give me food, <laughs> I walk away, I eat, done, right. and it was good, you know? Yeah. Maybe it was good enough that I whipped out my camera and snapped a picture of it, something like right. that. Uh, but that's what this is. I mean, it's fast, it's inexpensive, you can generally get lunch for about 10 bucks. Uh, now, it's not a food hall. <laughs> you look at the place, it's a food court. It's like 1980s corporate architecture design it feels about as hip as eating in uh you know the food court at Oshner. you know <laughs> but all that's they about didn't to invest change. a lot of money in the uh, in the looks so but all that's about to change okay. that's another part piece of the story is that the building is actually gearing up for renovation they've hired a firm uh that's completed a few high profile restaurant projects around town uh so there's a new look coming for the food court in addition to these new vendors now you, you wrap them all together this is uh, about if you're including you know the smoothie stand downstairs there's 12 vendors yeah and some of them do show their age for sure uh but actually once i got into it i I visited all of these spots at least once for the story and uh some of it reignited like some real old nostalgic cravings in a way i mean the the little cheesesteak place rick's grill the tex-mex place uh there's a really good fresh salad place there called vintage garden kitchen um, which it turns out does their best business on Monday when people come in full of regrets from the weekend. Uh-huh. <laughs> just want a fresh salad and a hearty soup. There's huh. a little sushi place. There's a Vietnamese spot where I know certain people who are addicted to their coffee. Um, so, you know, for me, it was interesting. I had gone to this food court for years and years back in a past life uh, when I worked downtown in the CBD and uh, had really kind of forgotten about it. But um, with some new uh, diversity to the vendors, a real good mix of flavors now, it's back on the radar for me. Well, let's hope it doesn't turn into a food hall. (laughs) I don't think anyone's going to confuse the Place St. Charles office tower as the next, you know, warehouse converted into the artisanal market. But, um, you know, I'm glad to see the diversity of food there and the flavors there. And, uh, you know, again, for that, that niche, that quick, 
inexpensive, easy lunch. We, you know, I, I do feel like that's still sort of a, it's hard a missing find, piece yeah. on the New Orleans oh, food resume. It's yeah. elusive, yeah. Um, well, uh, in looking ahead, maybe you can just give us a taste of what we're going to see this weekend. Um, we've got a bunch of festivals on tap, busy, right? A busy, busy food weekend. Yeah, this is the last weekend before Thanksgiving coming up already. I know some people are surprised by that. Myself Early included. this year, yeah. yeah. And what happens is after that, it's the holidays. The holidays are on. So if you've got a food event, you're trying to squeeze it in before Thanksgiving. Uh, so we have two new ones and a returning one this weekend that are of note, uh, plus many others. But these are the ones we wrote about this week uh, that kind of came to attention. Well, the new one is called uh, Fête de Fromage. It's the Cheese Fest, although I don't think they want you to call it Cheese Fest. <laughs> uh, but it's put on by the French-American Chamber of Commerce of the Gulf South. Uh, it's going to be at the Old U.S. Mint, and it's 100-plus cheeses, cheese mongers, cheese producers. It's sort of like going to a wine tasting, meeting the maker, you know. Mm-hmm. So a real Epicurean, uh, uh, Epicurean day out there inside, indo- indoors, outdoors. Um, sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Definitely something new and different for New Orleans. Also new is an event called Wing Wars. And this isn't so much a festival as a contest to see who amongst the, I think it's uh, 12, 15 vendors will have the best wings. These are all restaurants from around the area. Some of them you know about. Some of them are traditional sports bar kind of things. Mm-hmm. Others Asian Latin American island style, so good diversity. That's going to be at Central City Barbecue in Central City. That's on Saturday. And then spanning the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, the return of uh, the Treme Creole Gumbo Fest. It's one of the free festivals put on by the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Foundation, the foundation behind Jazz Fest. Right. Uh, that's in Armstrong Park. Mm-hmm. 12 different vendors bringing 14 different gumbos. <laughs> so some are bringing several, including a few vegan ones, which have become sort of a surprising sub-niche for this festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's Saturday and Sunday, free, Louis Armstrong Park. A lot of brass band music in New Orleans right. sounds. Sounds good. Um, Maybe I'll see you out there. Come hungry. All right. Thanks, Ian. Thanks you, Gordon. All right. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell with two S's and two L's at theadvocate.com or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.